today featuring my interview this year with John Anderson of Yes. Yes was formed, you know, where you were introduced to the to the late Chris Squire in nineteen sixty eight and and that was yeah. really the beginning, the very, yeah. very beginning of Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was still on tour with the Warriors and I wanted to really uh, write some new music. Very uh, for some reason, uh, you know, a lot of acid and a lot of marijuana. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the Beatles had released uh, Sgt. Pepper. And all I wanted to do was create new music, new music. And they they kept shouting to me in the morning when I try to wake them up. Come on, we've got to go on. And they say, John, just F off, would you? No. Collectively, they said that. So after three days of that, I I actually went. (laughs) went. Went to Munich. Eventually got to London. And I bumped into Chris Squire in a bar uh, that uh, I was working in, cleaning the glasses. And it was above a very famous uh, rock and roll place called the Marquee Club. So you'd have Pete Townsend walking in and, you know, famous people, Jimi Hendrix, and I'd be cleaning the the glasses and serving them a beer or whatever. Wow, wow, yeah. (laughs) And I thought, well, I I like doing this. I was milking cows for a long time. (laughs) It sounded pretty now, good. <laughs> now I'm serving these wonderful artists uh, uh, some whiskey or whatever. Yeah. And uh, maybe I should be in the band. And then I met Chris, and that was uh, a turning point. It was brilliant. It was. And, you know, from doing all that, I mean, you were the guy, though, that had the ambition to make this work. I mean, you know, you were the guy that was solid on the ground, like, you know, writing songs, securing the gigs. That is yep. really those early days and what made it so successful is you just had to stay on top of it. Yeah, I think the, the turning point for us was uh, we, we had a, a record, uh, Fragile, and uh, we went on tour of America and Canada, started with Canada and eventually America with Jethro Tull. And that's when you, you the world opened up. You know, you, you go in and play in front of 10,000 people. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd stand at the side of the stage watching Ian, Ian Anderson perform. Mm-hmm. And he, was a, he, he is a great performer. And, uh, and I'd stand there with my tambourine like that. And I didn't, I didn't know much about performing so much. So uh, it took a little while for audiences to, to enjoy us. And uh, by the end of that tour... You know, we were going down very well as opening act. It was really good. Yeah. You know, when you were, you know, your original songs, you were, you know, doing rearranged covers of rock, pop, blues, jazz, you yeah. know, you know, very much in the in the in that very beginning. But then after a couple yeah. of years, there was a there was a clear redirection of the music with the Yes album. Yeah, I think we we'd uh, learned a lot together and uh, it just happened that uh we had Steve Howe in the band and Bill Bruford and Chris and uh, Tony Kay at that time. And we were very, very interested in, in structure because I've been listening a lot to classical music, Stravinsky, Sibelius, mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. And uh, so, so I just started humming ideas and coming up with ideas and why don't we try this? And then I'd, I'd hear Bill and Chris doing this thing on the bass and drum thing. And I said, Hey, guys, could you do it again? What are you doing? Oh, yes, great. Mm. Could you change key? <laughs> that heart yeah. of the sunrise. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the beginning of that. 
and, and then you go into the song. And I realized, interestingly, most of my songs are very, very simple. And uh, a lot of them are all about love songs and things like that. Uh, and then I, th- at that time, it, Vietnam was around and it was That's really right. dark. And I started writing, uh, was it called? Um, oh, gosh. I've got it, some, I've got it written down somewhere. Um, yours is no disgrace. Mm-hmm. Okay. And all those young people going to war in Vietnam, not knowing why they were there, etc. is like, gosh, stupid world we live in. <laughs> so you start writing about it yeah. in songs close to the edge. was... Uh, to me, it was close to the edge of realization, um, and it still is. You know, we're mus- still we're still stuck in various wars and problems with people. <laughs> but but that's how much you know that you know music played such an important role and and continues to. But like during that time, that was the place to express that and and to share that with obviously other people that that felt the same. I mean, the music, it wasn't just about the music. It was about what you were communicating as well. Yeah, because I think when we started, yes, I was 27, I think. And I thought I was too old to be a pop star. So no. I'm just going to get on with uh, writing some music about, yeah. uh, you know, Starship Trooper, yeah. which was a book by a guy called Heinlein who wrote uh, sci-fi uh, books. And I was reading a lot of sci-fi at that time. So... We were very, very creative, especially through the close to the edge period. Uh, it was kind of mind blowing to me that we actually created something like close to the edge as a piece of music. And uh, last night I was out with some friends and the waiter came over and looked at me and said, you're John Anderson. And I said, yeah, <laughs> he said, close to the edge. And he was about 18. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> cool. Isn't that great? This guy was 18 years old, called yeah. uh, Chase. It was like, I That's thought, cool. hey, we, we reach people in, in so many different levels in different times. Owner of a Lonely Heart came out. Massive, massive hit. Number one on the charts. Let's let's get the background on all this, and let's talk about uh, Trevor Rabin, who at the time he was a South African singer and composer, and yeah. that's kind of how that song and his part of the band came about. Yeah, I actually, at that time, they were recording. I was in the south of France. Uh, I, I'd met this wonderful artist, uh, painter from Russia, a guy called Marc Chagall, who I didn't really know. It was his Chagall, 90th yeah. birthday. And I went there with Bill Wyman, who lived nearby. And uh, I just liked the guy. You know, he was such yeah. a sweet-looking guy. Yeah. And uh, he invited me to his house, and I started going to his house, looking at his paintings. I couldn't believe this guy. And then I learned about his stained glass work and all. Oh, incredible guy. So I, next two weeks later, I took my guitar along and sang him a song that I wrote for him. And then I write another song <laughs> for him. Hmm. And... Um, he said, what are you doing with the, the, the songs, John? I said, I'm going to write a musical about your life. And he said, well, musicals take time, you know, because he, he knew Stravinsky and people like that, incredible amount of people he knew in his life. And I just said, no, I'll get it done next year. And like 40 years later, I just did a, version, a short version of it in San Francisco a month ago. Can you imagine? And he was right. <laughs> wow. Musicals take time. So yeah. I, was, I was going back to, after about 
that period of time, I went back to London, see my family, make sure everybody's having a good time, life is good. Mm -hmm. And Chris rang me up and said, John. And I went, who's that? <laughs> it's Chris. Oh, Chris, how are you? I have to say that. <laughs> and um, he said, I want to play some music. And I said, okay. So he came around with his beautiful Rolls Royce and uh, mm. I, I jumped in the seat with him and uh, he started playing me this music. And it, it was kind of funny because I'd heard an album by the Sex Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaren, mm -hmm. and the producer was this Trevor Horn guy, and I didn't know who he was. And I said, this is really, really, re Chris, this is really good, okay? And he said, I thought you'd like it. And I said, who's producing? He said, Trevor Horn. I said, ah, you've got a really good guy. And Trevor Rabin is from where? South Africa. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. You've mm -hmm. got these. Actually, it's brilliant. This music is brilliant. So what do you want to do? He said, well, we'd like you to sing on it. And I oh, said, that's cool. yeah. oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> let me think about it. Uh, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fool. No. This is br brilliant music. An owner of a lonely heart. So the following day, I went in the studio. Me and Trevor met, and uh, I, I sort of the song that they had for it was a little bit more, just a song that had a sort of verse that are kind of lazy lyric, you know. Wow. So I just got on with writing it that day and sang it and everything, and you know, you think. This sounds like a number one. <laughs> did you think that? Did you think that initially? Yeah. Oh, I did, yeah. Oh, that's I, cool. I honestly did, and so did the record company. And, of course, they financed a brilliant sort of video of us all turning into animals and birds and things. And it became a number one hit around the world. Well, and, it, it was that music video. You talk about that video and the yeah. and the dawn of MTV. I mean, I mean this was MTV all lying up. Yeah. yeah. MTV kicked in and... Uh, you know, we went on tour, and <laughs> it was wonderful chaos yeah. to me, you know, just to be um, screamed at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think they said, get off the stage. <laughs> no, it was not. It was not. It was yeah, not. That kind of thing. But that was, I mean, that was just, just such a pivotal, uh, you know, time for the band, too. I mean, and this is, you know, you've already been around since the late 60s, and boom, yeah. this big hit, and just kind of reinforces. And then people, when that something like that happens, it does, you know, allow people to go back and even look at the earlier works and become an even bigger fan, right? That's what I found. You yeah. bump into people in a bar after the gig or something. Oh, I, I can't believe you do da, 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 da. And then I've heard Awaken. What the hell? You were doing that music. We mm -hmm. didn't, I didn't know that. Mind you, it was 12. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> it, it didn't matter. And that was John Anderson of Yes. Every year on my show, I share my favorite conversations of the year. This week, we already shared conversations with Henry Winkler and comedian Nikki Glaser, which you can find at WGNRadio.com. Today, I'm going to share an always spirited and informative conversation with TV's Mike Rowe. And 
when I think of America's workers, I think of my pal Mike Rowe and his foundation, Mike Rowe Works. He's the host of the rebooted Discovery Channel series, Dirty Jobs, host of the story behind the story, the podcast, The Way I Heard It, Voice of the Deadliest Catch, How America Works on Fox Business. He's given away a million dollars in scholarships. You're making Ryan Seacrest look like a slacker here, Mike. <laughs> Get busy. You, know, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mike Rowe, everybody. How you been? Well, I'd be a fool to complain. It's been, uh, you know, it's been a strange year. It's been a strange three years. Um, so I'm I'm navigating as best I can in waters that are best described as uncharted. Yeah, right. And there's no question about that. Yeah, I want to talk to you about some facts leading into our conversation. Your foundation. Um, you know, scholarships around programs that support the trades and with the cost of college and university programs surging 169% was just reading since 1980, according to a report uh, from Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. And then you look on the other hand, vocational schools, trade programs cost a fraction of those prices and they pay really good money. And that's what your foundation does. It focuses on the millions of jobs that are available that don't necessarily require a four-year degree, and there really needs to be a greater focus on recruiting young talent, don't you think? I think we just have to get our our thumb off of the scale. You know, there's so many terrific opportunities in the workforce. If you want to look at it in terms of blue-collar and white-collar, the opportunities exist on both sides. Personally, I think we've entered into a, a time where the color of collars is is no longer germane i think we're looking at robotics and technology on one end ai on the other end everything is being impacted but the thing that remains right at the heart like one of the few things that's still completely and totally true in my view uh is the fact that the skilled trades are not going to be outsourced and they're not going to be replaced by robots and they're not going to be replaced by AI. And so, you know, I'm not going to take a victory lap just yet, but I do feel really great having done this for 15 years, watching the headlines catch up with the basic truth of what we espouse, which is that you can still prosper by any definition as a result of learning a skill that's in demand and working your ass off. It's still for sale. It still works. And so, yeah, that's the other boulder we push up the hill. We're just trying to get all of the opportunities on the table to be weighed and measured fairly and equally by parents and guidance counselors and, of course, Gen Z, who is entering the workforce now. Uh, in unprecedented times. Well, and the goal is here to pursue pursue your dreams, explore what your career might be. A four-year degree is, is can be a great thing based on what you're doing, but a four-year degree is not for everyone, right? Well, there's that. But I would also say, too, Dave, you know, the words matter. And when people talk to me about pursuing their dreams, the first thing I say to them is, look, are you sure about your dream? Are you sure... Hmm about your passion. I mean, it's terrific to have a burning desire to do a thing and then to go out into the world and do it. But one of the big lessons on dirty jobs, and I just saw this again and again in all 50 states, in virtually every vocation, I met people who were really passionate about what they were doing and who really loved their trade, but never dreamt of doing it. Mm -hmm. They didn't 
start out, you know, with this burning passion. They didn't follow their passion, in other words. They, they followed opportunity, and they, in many cases, took a reverse commute. And they got themselves out there in the world, and they became proficient at a thing. And then they got passionate about it. Then they prospered. Then they figured out a way to love it. So we all want the same thing. You know, we want to feel passionate and engaged about doing something meaningful and lucrative. But the order that we chase all those things down, that's up to us. And I, I worry sometimes that if we start with the challenge of identifying our passion, then we're going to miss out on all sorts of opportunities. Because if, if I've learned one thing for sure, and I'm stingy with advice because I, I don't know who's <laughs> listening and so yeah. people need to hear different things at different times. Yeah. But I'll tell you this, it, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you can't suck at it. <laughs> and and just, just because you're not <laughs> doesn't mean you might not have a great facility for it. Right, right. So, you know, encouraging people to explore opportunities is a, is a big part of what we try and do at MicroWorks. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the American work ethic. So there are still uh, so many people working from home. Um, some people have thrived in that environment and some have improved in a high level of productivity, uh, you know, as the work environment has shifted. But there are many taking advantage of that. And there's blue chip companies, including Goldman Sachs, Meta, Zoom, even Zoom, who's, you know, who started the whole working from home experience. That are pushing with various degrees of severity for employees to physically be present at work. And like Goldman told workers, they need to be in the office five days a week. No ifs, no buts. Uh, and, you know, in tech land, even Mark Zuckerberg is telling, you know, your three-day work week policy now becomes a threat of, if you're not showing up, you're going to get fired. Mm-hmm. We're seeing, I think, a really terrific example of how so many seemingly disparate things are connected and what happens when you start to yank on a thread right what happens to the rest of the quilt i live outside of san francisco god help me and that town is in terrible terrible trouble right now in part because so many buildings are empty people don't come to work so the downtown shrivels and starts to collapse on itself and nobody is quite sure what to do about it or how to make an argument but I was just thinking the other day, I think the, the stat is like 55% of people who are together, mates, romantically involved, have met at the office, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What's going to happen? Like, there, there, there's so many things, if you really think about a culture Interesting. where most workers uh, aren't coming together to to do a thing, teamwork changes, Um efficiency, effectiveness, all different things get elevated, but other things become subordinate. And, you know, I'm, I'm also really struck by the fact that this is probably the best example I've ever seen of how cookie cutter advice simply doesn't work. I don't know what to tell you, uh, speaking broadly about what to say to people. I'm, I'm having the same conversation with my own crew right now. I have eight people at MicroWorks. We can all do our jobs remotely, but should we? You know, yeah. what do we lose? Mm-hmm. You know, what what do you give up by not being able to stick your head in a in a coworker's office and say, "Hey, real quick, I want to run something by you." Best ideas. What come ideas? From that. Yeah, best ideas exactly. come from that. Yeah, and 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 
over a coffee or over a lunch or maybe over a drink after work. All that stuff goes away, you know. So, look, I worry about it. But on the other hand, I got a book here on my shelf somewhere. Uh, you would laugh. It's literally called Row. R-O-W-E. Mm-hmm. It stands for Results-Oriented Work Environment. Wow. And it was written like 15 years ago. And I love it. <laughs> I, I don't want to go to the... I, I've never worked in an office in my whole life, but I'm really worried now about what will happen in the way of unintended consequences if we let all the air out of that tire. Because it's going to radically transform the working landscape. I was talking to a friend of mine about this the other day. Something you brought up earlier is, how did you meet your mom or your dad or, or your partner? How did you meet... Well, I was swiping yeah. to the left, and there she was. <laughs> like, where's those stories? I know. Th- those stories are always the best on how you met somebody. And, you know, with the fact that people are working at home, with the fact that we have so much technology in our hands, which, can, which of course, is a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. There's, a, there's at least two generations that are out there that have never shook a hand or had a one-on-one conversation because they're working off a screen or working off zoom or not. There's no interaction there. And I think that's going to be detrimental to detrimental to the workforce. Eventually the pendulum swings, you know, it always has, and it always will. And it's, it's only ever in the perfect spot for a moment. And then it overreaches. It's like a foul ball, right? It's either like like a pop fly. It's either going up or it's coming down. Yeah. You know, for a second, for a second, it hovers there. And it's like, oh, that's perfect. But that's how I think a lot of people think about the, the status quo of virtually anything. And three years ago, we got a huge wake-up call. You know, it shook our cage in a giant way. And all of a sudden, we scrambled. We pivoted. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm super proud of what my team did. And I'm, I love the fact that Dirty Jobs went out there and shot during lockdowns. And I love the fact that we did the first Zoom show in prime time when we didn't have any other choice. But now the caution flag is up. And people have had a taste of, of what that was like. And, and a lot of them don't want to go back. Don't know what to say about that other than, you know, sometimes things have to go splat before they get better. And uh, those big companies you mentioned are grappling with uh, with a giant issue. And I'm super curious to see how it spins out. No question. Mike Rowe's foundation information can be found at MikeRowWorks.org. I love, Mike, how you give back every day. You put your money where your mouth is. You do great work. And it's always a pleasure to tap your brain and spend some time with you. Hey, man, I got great cards. I'm having a good time playing them, and, and the foundation really has been a godsend, uh, not just to the people we've assisted, but to me personally.